Hello and welcome to the weekend wrap for the week on Wednesday. I am your host Ben Davison and it is Sunday the 28th of August 2022 and I hope it's a beautiful day wherever you are around Australia or indeed around the world. What a massive, massive week it's been in Australian politics and in our nation as a whole. Of course, the Morrison inquiry was announced this week, and it's a very interesting time for Australian democracy. Of course, the Morrison inquiry will investigate the multiple ministries that Scott Morrison gave to himself in secret during the pandemic with the assistance of the Governor General. Now, there has been some legal advice around this, and apparently what he did was not illegal, but was certainly not in keeping with good government and responsible government. This has led to the inquiry and the appointment of the Honourable Virginia Bell AC, former High Court Judge and New South Wales Supreme Court Justice. Now, the Honourable Virginia Bell will be looking at all of the circumstances, all of the paperwork that's available, uh, will be able to talk to people as she sees fit, has not been given the power to compel people to answer questions, unlike a Royal Commission, but the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, has indicated that if she requires that, then she can come and ask for it. He's also said that he would expect people would voluntarily cooperate. Now, of course, Scott Morrison has said that he will cooperate with any uh, genuine, in inverted commas, in, uh, inquiries into the response to the pandemic, but has gone on in many Facebook rants to talk about the states and what the states did or didn't do. He's also continued to justify his unjustifiable behaviour and continues to believe that what he did was in the quote-unquote national interest. Now, we'll see what happens when the Honourable Virginia Bell hands down her report to the Prime Minister on the 25th of November 2022. Whether or not Scott Morrison will cooperate between now and then remains to be seen. We've heard the pro-Morrison people out there spruiking that this is a witch hunt. You know, it's interesting. Conservatives used to be about the rule of law. They used to be about convention. And as was mentioned on Insiders Today, if you had gone back to the constitutional conventions when we were forming the Commonwealth of Australia and said, look, there's going to be a prime minister. He's not going to break any laws, but he's going to shred all of these conventions. They would have been horrified, absolutely appalled at this behaviour. And yet we have these Liberal Party stooges out there going, well, he didn't break any laws, so he hasn't done anything wrong. Of course, the inquiry will look at what needs to happen to ensure this sort of thing doesn't happen again. And there may need to be some codification of convention. There may need to be some additional protections put in place to prevent this Napoleonic-style uh, consolidation of power into the hands of a single person. Of course, the Morrison inquiry is not the only inquiry that was announced this week. Uh, while the Morrison inquiry will look at how we deal with and safeguard our democracy, the RoboDebt Royal Commission was also announced. Now, this is so important. 400,000 Australians were sent RoboDebt notices. Some 2,000 or more Australians had their lives impacted by RoboDebt to such an extent that their lives came to an end. Now, 
This Royal Commission will look at the circumstances surrounding some of that because, of course, it is deeply traumatic and devastating for all the families involved, but particularly for those who, in my view, rightly believe that RoboDebt played a part, potentially caused the loss of a loved one. This is incredibly difficult, incredibly difficult. We should remember this was a scheme set up by Morrison and the coalition to bring back money into the Commonwealth out of the pockets of some of our most vulnerable Australians. Some of the stories that have been told here, you've got widows losing payments and then being sent debt notices. People kicked off disability support pensions, even though they have a lifelong disability. People who were breached while being long-term unemployed, despite meeting all of their requirements, simply because they managed to pick up a few casual hours at a local cafe or supermarket. People sent thousands and thousands of dollars worth of debt Debt collectors hassling people on the phone, at home, literally driving people to the point of breaking. Now, Van talked about this on the drum on Thursday night, and I'll post links so people can have a look at it, because it's really important to understand where this comes from. Alan Tudge, who was the former minister in charge, once said that we will find you, we will punish you and you may well go to jail. For a government to threaten its own citizens in that way over what amounts to very small amounts of money at an individual basis. Now, if you don't have the money, it seems like a lot. But in the scheme of the Commonwealth budget, this is not a huge amount of money. Why was the rhetoric so high? Why was there such a chase put on these people? Why was there such pressure applied to so many Australian citizens? Because culturally, culturally, the coalition has fully embraced the idea that there is an undeserving poor. So instead of talking about people as workers, whether they're in a job, looking for a job, unable to work temporarily because of an injury, or no longer able to work because of a permanent disability, or having retired from work, instead of thinking about people in that kind of a spectrum, the coalition puts people into categories, lifters and leaners, bludgers and taxpayers. That's their thinking. So anyone who got sent a robo-debt notice generated by an algorithm, not by a person, not with any oversight by a person, was in the minds of the coalition government at the time less than their fellow citizens. And this is the real travesty. So while the Morrison Inquiry will look at the formal processes and structures of the execution of our democracy, the RoboDebt Royal Commission is so important for how our social democracy functions. Because every single one of the 400,000 Australians that was sent an algorithm-generated robodebt notice is a citizen of this country. They are entitled 
to believe that their government is on their side, that their government will protect them from unfair harassment, that the government will prevent will prevent them being driven to the point of breaking. So look, the Royal Commission is going to be run by Catherine Holmes, who's the former Queensland Chief Justice. It's going to look at the setup of the scheme, who was responsible, any concerns people raised during the setup, complaints that were raised during the execution of the scheme, how those complaints were handled, what changes, if any, were made, the impacts on vulnerable people. We all know those stories. We've all got friends and family who've experienced them. And of course, what policy changes need to be put in place to prevent this from ever happening again. And to give you a sense of how seriously the Labor government is taking this, there was four cabinet ministers present at the announcement of the Robert Royal Commission. The Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, the Attorney General, Mark Dreyfus, Bill Shorten, the Minister for Government Services, and Amanda Rishworth, the Minister for Social Services. This is a huge priority for Labor. It's so important that we get this right and that these sorts of things never happen again. One of the things I will say straight off the bat is algorithms are not the solution to your problem. They're not the solution really to any problem. They are a means of informing decision makers. What's clearly happened with RoboDebt, and there'll be lots and lots of evidence around this and many other points as well, but what's clearly happened is that somebody decided that it would be easier and cheaper just to let the algorithm do it. And what happened? Thousands of people died. Hundreds of thousands of people were harassed. And the Commonwealth had to pay a settlement of billions of dollars to its own citizens, to us, to the people who were harassed by our own government. Of course, these things were discussed on Insiders. Probably one of the biggest things that was discussed this week is around the Jobs and Skills Summit. And I want to point out right now that if you don't believe me about joining your union, believe Jennifer Westacott, who's the head of the Business Council of Australia, who on Insiders Today admitted that people on collective agreements, people who are in unions, get paid more money. They get paid more money. Join your union, australianunions.org.au slash wow, W-O-W. Join your union today because even the head of the Business Council of Australia admits that workers on collective agreements, on union agreements, get paid more money. And how did this come up? Well, of course, insiders had Sally McManus, the head of the trade union movement, uh, and Jennifer Westacott, the head of the Business Council of Australia, on Insiders this morning, talking about the Jobs and Skills Summit. And look, Van and I have been talking with some workers this week, and we'll have a big episode on Wednesday about the Jobs and Skills Summit and about why we need changes to our workplace laws. Because what's come out on Insiders is there is some areas of agreement, areas of agreement around upskilling, around more support for apprentices, about lifting apprenticeship wages. You know, Sally Man has said, you can't live off an apprenticeship wage. That's a problem. You know, if we want apprentices, you've got to pay them a living wage. That makes sense, doesn't it? Of course, there's also some discussion around 
reintroducing migration to Australia. And of course, the union movement has a view around that, that people who come to Australia should come here ideally on a path to permanency, should come here with protections in place, including being a member of a union with the ability to opt out if they don't want to be, but essentially default union protection from day one. Of course, there are business elements that don't want that, but they do recognize that we will need more permanent and less temporary migration if we want to grow our economy in a sustainable way. So that's good. Of course, the big point of contention is around bargaining. Now, Sally McManus went on the 730 report and again on Insiders and has been on the Today Show and all sorts of places talking about how we need to fix bargaining to get wages moving. And there's no question that that's what needs to happen. Because quite frankly, when you've got people like the CEO of Wes Farmers, now Wes Farmers is a conglomerate. It owns things like Kmart and um, uh, what is it? Amart and multiple brands, right? <clears throat> multiple brands are owned by Wes Farmers. 100,000 workers work for Wes Farmers. The CEO does not want multi-employer bargaining. Why? Because each of those brands is its own employer. And in some cases, those brands have franchise arrangements. And in some cases, those franchisees then have their own agreements. So you get increasingly smaller and smaller groups of workers who have less and less power to bargain. What CEOs of companies like Wes Farmers are concerned about is that the workers the 100,000 workers will go, hang on a minute, capital is organised, the management of all these things is organised, all of these things are controlled centrally, why are we not bargaining as one group of workers? Of course, they're terrified of that. Now, that's not, that's not the initial concern for most people. Quite frankly, for most people, the initial concern is that there are small businesses, medium-sized enterprises, caring industries, feminized industries, where the bargaining just doesn't happen at all, let alone at a brand or franchise level. You know, Peter Dutton has called Sally McManus a 1970s throwback. It was interesting on insiders to hear them say, well, that's just wrong, because in the 1970s, you didn't have women leaders of the trade union movement, and Sally Manus is clearly an independent woman leader leading the union movement and is actually negotiating these things in good faith. Peter Darton is not negotiating these things in good faith at all. <clears throat> it is really, really important that we understand the nuances of this debate. Because in feminized industries, in caring industries, you're talking about small groups of workers working for small employers in large industries, in large sectors, in growing sectors. And you're seeing large companies come in and atomize these workers into small groups, meaning that it's almost impossible to get a pay rise. Now, Jennifer Westercott said something that I thought was a little disingenuous in that she said that you don't want to see competition taken out of wages because you want businesses to compete for the best people and they have the ability to pay people more. Now, 
That sounds really good, right? Like that sounds like a really positive approach, except we have record low unemployment and we're still experiencing wage cuts. This idea that there is a war for talent, that somehow or another businesses are out there recruiting people into aged care or early childhood or retail by offering them big wage increases by going, you're the best salesman at Kmart, so you're going to get an extra $30,000 a year. It's a nonsense. It's not real and it doesn't happen. What happens instead is that wages are put into downward competition. So a company will have a series of subcontracted companies in cleaning, in maintenance, in electrical, in construction, in a whole range of different things that a company relies on, on de- in delivery, in various professional services even. And what happens is that the lead company, the head contractor, puts downward pressure on the subcontractors. So every time the contract comes up, the workers are told to take a pay cut or lose their jobs because someone else will get the contract. So you have whole sections of the economy where workers are constantly competing against each other to have the lowest possible wage just to keep their job. And then some of the workers Van and I have been talking to in the last week have talked about how this has been in place for over a decade, how not only have they not had a pay rise, They've had consistent pay cuts every time a contract comes up. One worker, and we'll talk in more detail on Wednesday about this, talked about how he's been working at the same company for 20 years and how every four years, for the last 13 years, he's taken a pay cut just to keep the same job, just to do the same job. Now, of course, Collective bargaining, multi-employer bargaining won't instantly solve all of these problems, but it gives us another mechanism to actually deal with these problems. And it means workers can band together. Childcare workers who are one to three or four people in a centre can't negotiate with a volunteer committee that's only in place for one or two years. That's not realistic. It doesn't happen. We need the capacity for workers to come together and bargain collectively. Most countries in the world have this, particularly developed Western countries have this capacity. It was really interesting to hear Sally McManus on Insiders talk about the reality of the circumstance. Jennifer Westercott acknowledged that particularly in some of the feminized industries, particularly in some of the funded sectors, that Yes, bargaining doesn't quite work. And of course, Sally acknowledged that they want to make bargaining more simple. We want bargaining to work for more people. We don't want it to be a lawyer's picnic every time. That's not what was intended when bargaining was revamped in the 90s. But of course, we've got basically the same enterprise bargaining system that was created in the early 1990s, you know, A bargaining system that's as old as I am doesn't take into account the gig economy, the rise of platforms, the explosion in subcontracting, the explosion in outsourcing, the rise of the care economy, the fact that there are now so many more small businesses. There is now well over 
2 million businesses in Australia. Yes, big companies have consolidated their power and position, but they've often done so through the use of multiple brands and multiple sub-entities. None of these things were in place when bargaining was first created, and that was really one of the points Sally raised on Insiders Today. We have to have a system that's fit for today and can anticipate and be flexible to deal with the challenges of tomorrow. So Peter Dutton is wrong, frankly. This isn't about throwing back to the 1970s. It's about throwing forward to the 2070s. What does our system look like when we are a zero emissions economy? What does our system look like when feminized industries are no longer gender segregated? What does our system look like when we've dealt with the pay equity gap? What does our system look like when our superannuation system is fully mature and people are retiring with a full superannuation benefit? That's what we need to solve, and that's what the Jobs and Skills Summit moves some way towards doing. Of course, the Conservatives aren't even going to participate. I mean, David Littleproud from the Nationals will, Peter Dutton won't. And I'll leave you with this little thought. On Insiders, they showed a clip of Michaela Cash railing against the idea of multi-employer bargaining, claiming that workers in Perth would go on strike in support of workers in Melbourne. Now, putting aside the fact that workers don't go on strike lightly because, of course, it costs them money to do it, what Michaela Cash has given away there is that when she was Industrial Relations Minister, there were companies in Perth, who were creating enterprise bargaining agreements with small handfuls of workers who weren't even permanent, who weren't even ongoing, creating agreements that undercut market rates, that reduced the wages of workers that were applying to workers in Melbourne. Sometimes people show you who they are and I think it's important that we pay attention. Michaela Cash knows that multi-employer bargaining will lift wages, and she doesn't want that to happen, because Michaela Cash knows that there are companies who have used that trick, small numbers of workers in a different state doing something different, creating an agreement that's on the boss's terms and applying it to thousands of workers on the other side of the country for a contract that they won on the basis of lower wages. So on Wednesday, Van and I will talk about the summit. We'll talk about the workers and their incredible stories. These are workers who have absolutely stood up and we'll we'll talk about their incredible incredible, incredible stories on Wednesday. Until then, remember to be kind to yourself and to each other.